Well, we're continuing to work our way through the book of Ephesians this morning, and last week we saw how everything changes when God intervenes and He makes us alive in Christ. And so today, we're going to get a slightly different version of that, right? Before we were dead in Christ, but now we are alive in Christ. But how do we relate to other people, even those we disagree with and those we have conflict with? Because it seems like our world right now is full of divisions and rivalry, right? There's Mac versus PC. There's Texas versus Oklahoma, right? We have Democrats and Republicans. And it seems like right now, even within those parties, right, you're not Republican enough, so you can't be a part of our group, or you're not Democrat enough. And so even within our parties, people are splitting right and left, there's division everywhere. And so how do we navigate those relationships in a place where um, the world is divided and it seems to be pushing all of us to the extremes? So how does what Christ did on the cross and the new life that we experience in Christ change our view of the world and how we respond to it? Um, we're going to see that this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 22. It's page 1037. Um, if you're following along in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, if not, you can follow along in the Brentwood Bible app or in your own Bible. Um, so let's read this together, verses 11 through 22. It says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done by, in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit." And so we're going to work our way through this, and it's Paul is great for people who think like I do. He's very logical. He connects his arguments like part by part, and so it's really easy to follow him. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take a couple of verses at a time, kind of see where we were, what happened, and what we, how we live now. So first, Paul is telling us to remember that you were without Christ. You were without Christ. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He talks about the, the Gentiles and the Jews. And so for the whole thing, we're going to talk about it using the terms that are in Scripture. But basically, Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew, um, which would include, I think, everybody here. 
Um, but, and that was a distinction made a long time ago. It's not as big a deal now, um, but just know anybody without Christ is kind of who's in the Gentile category, um, is what he's saying. And as we come to a new year, right, we often spend time remembering of looking back on what has happened in the year before, what went well, what didn't go so well, um, what went the way that we wanted it to go, and what we hope wished would have gone differently, or how we've grown And I think that's a good thing to do. It gives us perspective of where we are. Um, And we can do the same things in our spiritual lives, right? Did I read the Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Did I share the gospel with someone? Um, Did I practice enough spiritual disciplines? But this is talking about, I think, a deeper level of remembering, something a little different, right? To look all the way back to before you were in Christ. And so for some of us, that's a little bit longer than others, um, I understand that. And so if you have been a Christian for like, I don't know, like eight, some of you 80 years at this point, I think, um, or if you were saved in an early age like I was, you may not be able to remember much of a difference between when you were, before you were in Christ and after, but you can also compare how you've grown in Christ from now to even just a few years ago. And so this is a deeper level of remembering. This level of remembrance is, is sort of like this, right? Remember when I had cancer, Or remember when I had that heart attack or I had that car accident and we thought it was going to be the end, but it wasn't, right? And remembering that and those things that you've been through and those significant situations makes you thankful for what you have now. It makes you thankful that you are still living, right? This is what he's talking about, that level of remembrance of saying, I was dead, but now we're almost dead and now I am alive, I want to caution us just a little bit because sometimes when we reflect, sometimes we can dwell on what we see, right? I really haven't come that far in the last year, or I'm sliding backwards and I'm not where I want to be, or we feel the guilt or the shame that comes with um, what things we've used to be or things that we've done or that we haven't made it far enough, but that's not the point of what this is. This isn't to feel guilt or shame or anything about what's happened before. This is for you to say, this is where I was and this is where I'm now and Christ is stepping in. And I can be thankful for what he has done, for what he is doing in my life. And then Paul lists five things, if you notice, of consequences or things that happen as a result of not being in Christ, specifically not being an Israelite in this time, a part of God's chosen people. Now, a couple of them I know run together, but we're going to kind of go through each one of them. I think it's helpful for us to understand that, um, even though the situation that he is talking to, where Jews and Gentiles was a big deal, isn't so much anymore. It can help us understand a little bit about people who are without Christ, who are not a part of God's chosen people, whether that was 2,000 years ago or today, um, this is what they experience, right? Because Israel was God's chosen people, and their hope was built on the Messiah, that a Messiah would come to rescue them, to restore them, to give them salvation, um, to give them actually a nation. And so as God's people, um, Gentiles were excluded from that. That's kind of the background for where we are. So first he says they are without Christ, right? Gentiles had no connection, no hope of the Messiah, which, was, which is the same word for Christ. Only the Israelites could place their hope in and count on the Messiah to come and rescue them. Remember, he just spent a lot of chapter 1 
outlining the spiritual blessings that come with being in Christ, right? You have an inheritance, you have blessings, you have hope in God. None of those things exist for people who would in this category are Gentiles or who without are without Christ. <clears throat> then he says they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, right? While you could as an individual become an Israelite and kind of convert into that as a group, right? Gentiles could not do that. We're not doing that. So they had no part in what God planned to do in and through Israel, which included his promises, right? His promises of blessing and restoration. And so because of that, they were foreigners to the covenants of promise, right? Scripture is full of promises and covenants that God made with his people to Adam and to Moses and to David, but the Gentiles had no part. They were not included in those covenants. They were outsiders, excluded from the promises. Then he says they are without hope, right? There was no promised future, no promise of rescue or redemption for the Gentiles. They did not have the hope of what God had prom- was going to promise to do to use them in the future. So imagine people having to negotiate life in this world with no hope to sustain them, no hope of for this life or the life beyond. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no promise. There's nothing to, that's going to happen. And then it says they are without God, right? God had reached out and chosen the Israelites as his people. So the Gentiles were not included in that group. And so Paul wants us to remember this is what it looked like. This is where the Gentiles were. This is where we were before we were in Christ. And he wants us to remember that so we can see more clearly what has changed. What's the difference between then and now? Or if you're here this morning, that's a picture of where you are without Christ. That's the reality of where you are in your life. And maybe you're feeling those. Maybe you're not feeling hope or you're feeling like it doesn't matter what I do. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no eternal life. It's just over. Right? But that's where this gives us the answer in the next verses is to remember that Christ brought peace. This is verses 13 through 18, and we read it earlier, so I'm not going to read it again. We'll kind of reference it as we go through. But last week, we saw that everything in our passage changed with those first two words, but God. And this week, we have something very similar, right? But now in Christ Jesus, right? You were like this. You were without hope. You were without Christ. You had no promises. You were not part of the people of God, but now in Christ, everything changes, right? And there are several things that are changed, almost reversed, when you go from being without Christ to being in Christ, and that's what we see in this section. And so first, um, being in Christ moves us from hostility to peace. Now, I want to talk a little bit just about the kind of hostility where you would see in this time between the Jews and Gentiles, because this isn't just like, oh, I don't really like them, um, and if I see them coming down the street, I'll just walk to the other side so I don't have to talk to them. That's not what this was. Um, this was contempt and hatred. Just for example, the Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. 
God, they said, loves only Israel and of all the nations that he has made. The best of the Gentiles kill. It wasn't even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother as she was giving birth, for that would simply be bringing another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles worked utter contempt. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. That's hostility. That's hatred. That's contempt. Right? Contact with the Gentile made you unclean by law, and so you had to do certain things because you did that. These groups hated each other. And these are the groups he brings to peace. Right? From two groups that hate each other to one group that lives in a community together. That's what he talks about when he's talking about hostility to peace. This isn't, oh, I just don't like them. This is like, I'll kill you, kind of hatred. This is what he does. He takes them from two to one, two to one, right? And it's important to be reminded, this isn't just an individual shift, like two people in these camps decided, oh, we can overcome our differences and we can get along and it'll be okay. No, this is the whole community together, right? This new institution, which is kind of where we're at now, which is the church, doesn't discount our ethnic distinctions or what makes us unique, but it displays reconciliation with every believer equally qualified to share in the benefits of salvation and the peace that comes from being in Christ. Moves us into a new community. But the question I think you would ask is, how does that even happen? Right? How do people in those two groups say, oh yeah, we're going to live together in a community and we're going to be at peace and we're going to like each other even? How does that even happen? Well, Jesus reverses those things through the cross. We see this throughout the verses. You see phrases like, by the blood of Christ in his flesh, in one body through the cross. And so what does it tell us he accomplished? Well, first, in verse 15, it says he nullified the law. You may have abolished or something different, made of no effect, but this really means rendered inoperative. Um, there's a lot of argument on the translators here about what words should be used because it doesn't mean that the law and everything in the Old Testament just disappears and we don't even need to bother with it anymore. It just means it has no effect. It's nullified. It's canceled. Jesus has fulfilled it. The reason he's, this is important is because it was the law of Moses with its rules and regulations that served as the instrument that separated Jews and Gentiles. Right? It was the law of Moses that said, if you hang out with them, you're unclean. If you do this with them, then these are the consequences. And so part of the law separated these two groups. But Jesus, in his death, fulfilled the law. And once this happened, the Mosaic law was no longer the rule of life. It was no longer the way to live, no longer the way to be right with God. Right? And when you put two groups that hate each other together, it usually doesn't end up with one group. Right? It's one big group with two groups inside of it that still don't like each other. Right? They're just forced into the same place. 
But that's not what happens in Christ. Right? He takes everything that comes between the two groups and makes it obsolete. Right? If you take away the football game between Texas and OU, they're not automatically going to like each other. Right? It's not going to happen. They're not going to be friends. Something else has to happen to bring them together. So how did Jesus do that? How did he bring them together in this? Well, it tells us he put hostility to death and brought peace and and reconciliation. So the hostility between the Jews and Gentiles went both ways. It was mutual. And the same, I think, I want us to think bigger for just a second. The same can be true of man and God. On one side, we act in rebellion, and we go against God and his plans. But on God's side, our rebellion is sin is, in sin is met by his wrath and judgment. But through the cross, these hostilities, our rebellion, and God's judgments toward it could, can be brought to an end. Christ took our sins upon himself, and he took the punishment. He took the judgment and wrath for our sins and absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He literally killed the hostility between us and God. Sin and wrath were both dealt with that day on the cross, and the result is reconciliation between God and man as we put our trust in Christ and his work for us on the cross. It changes everything. And I think that's big picture level, but I think this can also apply to us on a smaller level. Right? Whatever is between you and someone else, whatever is causing hostility, whatever is causing division, whatever is causing conflict, whether it's something someone did or something someone said or a difference of opinion or different ideas, whether it's political or otherwise, whatever that is, Christ died to bring peace. He took the power away from whatever was dividing you. He took the thing that you think is crucial, that makes you feel powerful, that makes you feel right, and he killed it. It died with him on the cross. The hostility and division, at least for believers in Christ, is ended. Because he declared in the triumph of his death and resurrection that the things that divide us are meaningless. They don't matter. They actually don't and shouldn't have the power to divide us. Because their value and their place was put into perspective by Christ on the cross. The problem for us is we keep trying to resurrect those things and bring them back and give them value that they don't deserve. Right? But Christ brings peace as we trust in him and see that what he has done is greater than anything else. So all other things lose their power, they lose their significance at least to a level that should cause division and hostility among us. So when it says that Christ is our peace, it means that Jesus is a source of restored relationships. 
not only between us and God, but also between us and each other. Right? We form this new community together. Right? Having killed through the cross all the hostility that would come between us, we're now a new, united people, united through Christ and the Creator. So instead of Jews and Gentiles, there's a new way to look at the world, either two groups or three groups, depending how you want to look at it. There's a group of unbelieving Jews, there's a group of unbelieving Gentiles, and then there's the church, comprised of people who believe in Christ no matter where they came from. Right? A different way to see the world. It brings peace to hostility. It breaks down all of our barriers. It puts them all in perspective. It gives us peace by showing us what really matters, what's really important for us. And not only does he give us peace, it says also he gives us access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Um, that's verse 18. And, you know, fun fact, just to throw in there, you can see the Trinity in verse 18, actually. It's in through Him, you have access to the Father through, by the Spirit, right? In Christ. So you have all three there in verse 18. But it gives us access to the Father. We no longer need a high priest to talk to God. We no longer need to offer sacrifices for our sins to be made right with God. The once-for-all sacrifice for our sins opens the door for us to be a kingdom of priests, all with direct access through the Spirit because of Christ and His work on the cross. Right? That is what Christ has done for us. And so as we come to the last section, verses 19 through 22, Paul is telling us to remember who you are in Christ, right? You were like this without Christ, especially if you were a Gentile. Christ came and he brought peace and reconciliation and he put hostility to death and he gives us access to the Spirit. And so now we need to remember who we are, right? Because of all of this, so then you are, and then he lists all of these things that happen because we are in Christ. The changes that come, Right? You used to be foreigners and strangers, but now you are citizens. You used to be outside of God's people, now you're inside God's kingdom. We are under his rule and his authority. We are included in what God planned for his people. You used to be on your own, outside of God's chosen people and his promises, but now you are members of God's household. Not just in the group, not just I can tag along. You are in the family of God. Not outsiders, not guests, not distant relatives, sons and daughters of God. Full membership in Christ, in God's family. You used to be without hope and without God, but now you are God's temple. You are his temple, right? His temple is the place where God dwells, where you can experience his presence. And in the past, this was usually in one place, 
first in the tabernacle and then in the temple in the Old Testament. It was the place where God dwelled. So if you wanted to have an interaction with God, you had to go to that place. And you had to go through someone else who would go on your behalf to talk to God and then come back and report to you. And not like usually you as an individual, just like you as a group got to hear what he had to say. But now, after Christ has come, it is different. It's changed, right? We are the temple. We are the place where God dwells. Now his presence is not in one place. It's in many places because it goes with us wherever we go. Right? It's not hidden. It's not hard to get to. It walks with all of us. And it talks a little bit about how this temple actually comes together. Right? He says we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Right? The people that we are reading, Paul, the people who wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are building on their foundation of telling us who Christ is and what he's done. That's what we build on. That's where we start in building this temple. Our foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And then he gives us our cornerstone, right, as Jesus. And basically that means everything that's built in this temple is aligned and made right by the cornerstone. Right? You look to that to know where other things are supposed to go, how they're supposed to be built, so that everything stays straight and your building doesn't fall over. Right? Everything is built on Christ. He is the cornerstone. And so once we have a foundation that is solid, and we have a cornerstone that shows us how to build, what does he say? He says, we are the stones. We are the building that comes together to build the temple, the place where God dwells. I think Paul pictured kind of the church as being under construction, with God constantly adding new believers, adding new stones to the building. Right? You think I-35 has been on, under construction for a long time, right? The church has been under construction technically for 2,000 years, and we're still going, right? Still building. And so these stones represent the believers in Christ. And so we go from, remember you are without Christ, you are without hope, you are outside the people of God, to Jesus changed everything. And you can have peace and hope and be a part of the people of God and be the temple, the place where God dwells. Because what was the purpose of the temple? Right? The purpose of the temple was to meet with God. It was the place where you could experience his presence and commune with him through a priest. Right? But that's no longer needed. You no longer need a priest to get to God. You are the place where God dwells if you are in Christ. You are the priest. You are the one that can go directly to him. You are the one that can commune with him and hear from him and receive his word. Which means you can meet with God wherever you are. No matter what you're doing, you can meet with him. But the other thing the temple did in the Old Testament was 
It was to display God's greatness. Right? They didn't just build a little building as fast as they could and make it super plain and functional when they built the temple. If you go back and read when Solomon built it, it's big. It's ornate. There's stuff made of gold and bronze and silver everywhere. It's designed to display God's greatness. And now, since we are the temple, we display God's greatness. Right? We are the temple. God is in us, and we can display His greatness to others. We saw this actually last week, right? When it says we display the unending riches of His mercy and kindness to the world. That's what we do, right? <clears throat> we can display the greatness of Christ in what He's done by being at peace, by following Him, by being obedient. I think there's an additional thing, actually, is that we are where people can meet God, right? People went to the temple to meet with God. And if we are the temple, they can meet God through us, right? Through the Spirit within us as we trust in Him, and as we speak of Him, and as we live our lives, not in hostility, not in anger, not in division, but in peace and unity and patience and kindness, and compassion, and reconciliation. People can meet God through us because of what He has done in us and how He has changed us. Right? And so this is what Paul wants us to remember. Right? That once we were without Christ, we were without His promises, we basically had no hope for this life or the life to come, but Christ came and he died on the cross for your sins, ending the hostility, ending God's wrath towards you for your rebellion, for your sin, for your turning away. And then he gives you all of these blessings, right? To be in the family, to be in the kingdom, to be in his presence all the time as he indwells you through the Spirit so that we can commune with him and show others the greatness of who he is, how they can have peace, how they can have hope, how they can be part of God's family. So remember who we are in Christ, because that changes how we live. It changes how we see the world around us. It changes how we think about divisions and arguments and disagreements and all of those things. It gives us peace in the midst of those. It gives us perspective in the midst of all of those. So let's go and live and remember who we are in Christ. You guys, pray with me this morning. Um, God, we come before you and we thank you for your peace, especially in a time like this where it's a time of, it seems like, divisiveness and disagreements and, and anger and frustration. God, that you would help to use us, not to further those things or to add to those things, but to be a people of peace. A people who say, yes, those things are, can be important, but they're not ultimate. Right? All of the things that we think are important or that, that make us feel right or powerful or whatever it is, all of those things are lesser because of what you have done in Christ. That 
comes first. That goes over and above everything else. And so all of these things that we sometimes get angry and frustrated and upset and argue about, they don't have as much power as we think they do or as that we give to them. So God, help us to keep in perspective what you have done for us. How you have broken those down. How you have severed the power of hostility and division and conflict among us so that we can have peace as we remember who you are, as we remember what you've done for us, as you remember that you are indwelling us. Because even if we think, man, there's no way I can let that go. There's no way I can not respond to that person or defend myself or argue against this point because they're so wrong. That we don't have to do that. We can ask for help and your spirit within us can help us to overcome those things. Help us to trust in you. Help us to know what to say, how to show peace and kindness and compassion in our lives to others so that we can display the greatness and the mercy of God so that people can see this is where I can go. This is a person that can help me understand who God is, who can help me understand how to have hope, who can help me understand how to have peace. So God, help us to be a people of peace. So in your name I pray. Amen.